All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, wow, thanks for, thanks for remembering Tuesday night. Very impressive. I'm mostly happy that I remembered. I must say I was concerned. Uh, this evening, transvaluation of all values, the individual and the community. Um, so the idea here is that last time we talked about we've been trained in to believe that we live in a world of scarcity when very much more accurate to say that we live in a world of material wealth. And the problem with that is if you think you live in a world of scarcity when you don't, then when you try to solve the problems you're facing, you tend to apply the wrong sort of solutions because you misunderstand your situation. We don't live in a world of material scarcity, we live in a world of material abundance, indeed superabundance is a very much more accurate way to think about it. Tonight, I want to do the same process, again, is to look at the origins of our notion of individuality and our concepts of the community and how we've sort of essentially gone a long ways with individualism and individual liberty, which we think of as a good thing, um, and that what we've been trained up with, our inheritance from the Enlightenment, I'm very pro-Enlightenment, but our inheritance from the Enlightenment now misleads us. Um, individualism, individual liberty is not a solution to the problems that we face. And hopefully you'll see why that is as we go forward. And the concrete example, I'm going to use many examples, but the one I want to start with is uh, student loans. Currently in the United States, student loan debt stands at about 1.5 trillion. That's kind of an impressive number. Um, so a lot of students working for a lot of tips to pay that off for a while. Um, about $150 billion of that is in delinquency. So that's, it's, either, it's either delinquent or outright just not being paid. So that's kind of good. And that debt is held by 44 million mostly young Americans. And everyone knows this is a problem. Everyone knows, in fact, this is a growing problem. It's one of those problems, if you look at the chart, you know that at some point it ceases to function, right? It's just, it can go on for a long time. In fact, history shows you things like this can go on for an amazingly long time. But eventually, it all collapses. It just reaches some point uh, at which it is no longer sustainable. It all falls apart. And yet, for some reason, and for the reasons we're going to talk about tonight, we just can't seem to figure out how to solve this. It's very easy to solve. All we have to do is rethink our concept of individual liberty. That's the hard part. Right, so first, where does this come from? To understand the individual community, you must understand that communalism, the idea of the community, is essentially goes all the way back. Humans cannot live on their own. We are not made for isolation. In fact, isolation kills us. If you look on the back of, of the little handout there, <clears throat> there's a great quote. Several studies have been done on this. This is just the handiest quote I could come up with. In an article in the Harvard Business Review, Dr. Vivek H. Murthy, former Surgeon General of the United States, wrote, loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity. So it's better to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and be obese than it is to be lonely at least as far as mortality is concerned, and generally for the quality of life. We know this is true, but it turns out it's not just our psychological or emotional perception of this. It turns out to be just kill us. Being lonely, being isolated, being alone is bad for your health. 
And that's because we're social animals. It goes all the way back. I mean, we, are, we, are, we come from social animals. Our, 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 our family tree of evolution comes from apes who are social animals. I mean, we've been social for a long, long time. And trying to isolate the individual, it has very negative impacts. Um, and so if you look at something like the com commune structure, by the way, that, that word dates from about 1000 AD. Um, of course, communal living had, had existed for long periods before then. But ar around the commune age, it's 1000 AD, feudalism um, is sort of starting to give way to isolated towns and large villages that started to join together to protect themselves from the predations of nobles and bandits and princes and all other kinds of things. So they formed, this is where the word commune comes from. It just means community, it means together. And so what people did is they said, look, we're safer. We have better economic, social opportunity. We have more liberty if we live together, because we're protected from outside problems. Now, that was great. In fact, it was true. This is where we get the free city-states all over Europe. This, and this is not just a European model, by the way. This is why cities and, and, and small towns are formed all over, all over the world. But in the European model, this grows into actual free states where you had principalities ruled by dukes and whatnot, but in the middle of it would be like Frankfurt on Main, this sort of free city that had its own rights, its own rules. But what we're not used to um, and what we've broken with is the tradition. And if you look on the back there again, you'll see that while you gain protection and in fact greater economic opportunity um, and security than you would have if you lived on your own as a peasant or a smallhold farmer in the country, you did not have the following. The freedom of movement, freedom of marriage, freedom of education, freedom to spend the money the way you want, freedom to wear what you want, freedom of religion, of course, was out of the question. There's no press as we understand it now. Certainly you couldn't choose what to read. Uh, no freedom of conscience, no freedom of assembly, that was heavily regulated. No freedom of association, you could not associate with who you wanted to. There's no freedom of employment, you couldn't change jobs willy-nilly, this was not allowed. There's no free trade in any sense. You couldn't plant what you wanted. Usually these had villages or farms had ground around them that was farmed, of course, because these are agrarian societies. You could not just go and say, oh, I'm going to plant rye this year. No, this was all decided by the community, when it was going to be planted, who got to plant it, where they were planting. This was all shared. These were all decisions made by the community. Um, I mean, just everything was regulated and restricted. So, and this is pretty much what communal living has always meant. To be in the community meant you followed the rules of the community. You gained from having the opportunity to share in the community, which is necessary for us to thrive and be healthy human beings. The price you paid for that is with your personal liberties and freedoms. You handed over a lot of them to the rules and the guideline, the conduct of the community. What religion are you? Whatever religion your community is. If you don't like that religion, it's probably best if you just shut up. Otherwise, they will kill you, stone you, exile you. History is very clear on this. Remember, remember Socrates put to death because he was considered a threat to the community and because they thought he was introducing false gods. So even in Athenian democracy, 
could not tolerate any sort of deviation that Socrates represented because they felt he was a threat to the community. This is the history of communal living. So states grow, they become more complicated, we get kings, we get the pope, we have rules and structures and all of this, and then we get the Enlightenment. Now, of course, this is a bit of an abbreviated history, uh, but if to understand <laughs> the core of the Enlightenment it is not that complicated in some ways. It was a long series of arguments that said, no, I should have the right to read what I want, think what I want, argue what I want, choose the religion that I want, associate with the people I want to, have letters delivered to people in foreign countries who might even speak a different language, good Lord. We demand it, you must give it to us. And this was demanded against the church and the uh, kingly state. So the king cannot tell us we can't say bad things about the king. They can't censor the press. The church cannot say we can't have another religion or argue about church history. It's interesting, Shakespeare had to, Shakespeare wrote his, his great history plays, and he had to stop writing his history plays because they passed some rules in Elizabethan England about, hey, let's not have any more of that history. Because the, our history, you know, may not be all that helpful in, in promoting the reign of Elizabeth. And so that's when he shifted to writing his plays that are set in Rome. Right? Oh, all of a sudden we get a play on Caesar. That's great. Because they can't kill you or imprison you if you do a play on Caesar. But they can if you do another play about an English king. And you get the history, quote unquote, wrong. <laughs> right? Uh, but, you know, it, so, so he just stopped writing the history plays and shifted over to writing other kinds of plays. Um, because they, you know, narrow that in. You're not allowed to do that. Well, 100 years later or so, the Enlightenment comes along and says, no, look, we should be able to write the histories we want. Hume wrote a huge history of England. This is not uh, uh, disconnected that one of the great Enlightenment philosophers was also one of the great Enlightenment historians, Diderot. You know, they often had this mix of history, philosophy, interest in political liberty and ideals, because it was this freedom of conscience, freedom of expression. Um, and for us, the United States, we sort of hit the Enlightenment jackpot with our Constitution and the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it was just written by John Locke. I just think they sent a letter to Locke and said, Dear Locke, would you write the Constitution for us? And he said, Sure, I'd be happy to do that, knock myself out. And so, right, we all know it in theory. Um, but here it is again. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by the creators with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what we miss here is that the entire history of governmental structures of the world demonstrates that that is not self-evident. In fact, this is the least self-evident thing there ever was. All men are created equal? No, almost the entire history of mankind was ruled by either an aristocracy that said they were better than everybody else, or by kings who said they had a divine right to rule, or by popes and other religious leaders who said they were talking directly to God and they, God told me to kick you. Right? The, the, the notion that everybody's created equal is absolutely nowhere in world history. No one thought this. The Greeks who came up with democracy 
Um, yay, but on the other hand, just half of, them, uh, half of the population is slaves. Uh, another 25% aren't citizens, so they can't do anything. Another you know, 20% don't have the property requirements to allow them to participate as citizens. So a good solid 10% of the men, because of course women, whew, we're not gonna talk to them. So, you know, it's just so all, no, nobody, not created equal, not self-evident, not inalienable, nothing, nothing, not a part of this was true. They just made this up. They just said, hey, we're gonna say this because John Locke said it, we're gonna go with it. Um, that to secure these rights, governance, uh, governments are instituted among men. No, governments were the problem. This is the shift you have to understand. The, the uh, uh, Enlightenment thinkers were arguing against their governments. And the titanic shift they pulled off, not just in political movements, the economic developments, but the, the shift that took place was governments came to be seen as the locus for guaranteeing individual rights rather than under kings and popes and bishops and emperors as the locus for the people who killed you if you tried to say anything or you stepped out of line. Right? Nobody in the Persian Empire thought, oh yeah, Darius, that guy protects my civil liberties. I don't think anybody ever said, Xerxes, he's the man. Asher Banapul, he's the guy, he's freedom all the way, personal liberty, he, no. They're like, he's Asher Banapul, Isser Hadden, his son, you know, they, they rule, and as long as you follow the rules, Okay, if you don't follow the rules, the exile will kill you. It's perfectly clear in world history. And so this titanic shift happened. In part, by the way, it goes along with the shift to the nation state from other forms of the state nation and kingly state. Um, but uh, the key here is our liberties came to be seen to be guaranteed by this larger political structure. They weren't located in the commune anymore. What protected us from the king? The commune. What protected us from the robber barons? The city. How were we able to keep the aristocracy from robbing us? Well, you know, we'd form our militia or we'd fight back in, in our regional courts and we had, you know, we had all of these local systems that you belong to. Our guild would help protect us. Our church would help protect us. Local, personal, regional institutions that you were a member of. But to be a member meant you followed the rules. You dressed the way they told you. You went to church when they told you. You had the job you were supposed to. If you were a member of a guild, you didn't get up in the middle and say, you know what, I'm joining another guild. I'm switching jobs. I'm done with this guild. No, it was, it was, it was sort of a lifelong membership program. And leaving it was no good. And, and particularly many of the guilds, like the glassblowing guilds, were under penalties of death because they had technological skills that people didn't want to get out. You know, so this was not you know, trivial, trivial items. Um, and so this switch meant a lot of things, but for our purposes, it meant that our relationship to the community changed and changed incredibly. It took a long time for us to realize this. But now our freedoms, oddly, and almost uniquely in the rest of world history, are vested, or we feel they're vested, in this large state structure that's very distant and abstract to us, and not in direct relationships that are necessary for us to survive. Rest of history, you needed your commune, your family, your village, your city, 
or if you worked for an aristocrat, the family of the aristocracy that you worked for, you needed those structures in order just to live, much less thrive and have opportunity. So all these rights we take for granted that are in the Bill of Rights, right? The right to free religion, freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of bear arms, protection from search and seizure, from housing troops, or due process, secret charges, trial by juries, unreasonable punishment, fine, right? That's all there in the Bill of Rights. Um, and like I said, this is just like an enlightenment dream come true. It's everything that they had hoped for, made, made real by this argument. Ah, couple of problems with this. And, and what we are is we're living with them now. One I just want to mention, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but uh, because of international globalization, the nature of our state is changing. Everybody talks about this. Some people say it's the end of the nation state, blah, blah, blah. But if nothing else, it's changing. And because we've vested our freedoms and liberties in the state, when the state changes, we get nervous, understandably. But more importantly, what's happened is because our freedoms are now out there someplace protected by larger, more abstract, more distant institutions, we're able to exercise our freedoms. Now, this is generally seen as a good thing. But what does this mean? If we exercise our freedoms, then we do things like, for instance, freedom of movement. If you've ever been to a family reunion, a family reunion is a product of the freedom of movement. It's a bizarre thing. For almost all of world history, there was no such thing as a family reunion because you lived with your family. Right? This is, this is, you, because you could, I mean, movement was not a free thing. You, you could not leave. If you were a peasant or a slave, this is obvious. But even for people who lived in cities, unless you were very wealthy, one thing that throws us off is we tend to get the histories of the wealthy, of the super elite. But for 90, 95, probably 98% of the population, particularly for women, you just never went anywhere. And so now we have this institution that is the family reunion because our families all move all over the place. Um, and I think the shorthand way to think about this and to understand how this has changed from world history is a family reunion is a demonstration that you don't have a family. It really is. By any historical standard, the people you live with are your family. The notion that your family is a state, a continent, a thousand miles, 5,000 miles away is absurd. Now occasionally, for some reason, if someone was wealthy, or if they decided to go settle in the West, families would break up. But it was always considered a death sentence. You can read these, they're just heart-rending letters and journals from the people who left the old world and came to the new world. Um, in China, uh, the, 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 the uh, officials, the Chinese officials were moved all over the place. And so they have all these poems and memoirs, again, of Chinese officials saying the same thing as they said when the settlers came from the old world to new world. Farewell, my friend. We shall never meet again. That was always the tone of it. Goodbye, my brother. 
goodbye my mom or my aunt or my uncles or my sisters. We'll never, we'll never see each other again. This is the end. It was terminal. Because nobody else was going to move. Travel was incredibly difficult, dangerous, and expensive. And so for almost everybody, for almost the entire history of the world, you were with your family. Now, disrupting the family institution is not a small thing. It's titanic. Now, people talk about the nuclear family. Lots of people who want to promote, you know, healthy, moral families and all this. It's a bunch of nonsense. The nuclear family is a very, very late addition to the notion of family. The nuclear family is, in fact, the family that's small enough to move around together for a while. This is a terrible idea. World history shows us clearly no families live together. And so all kinds of fundamental social institutions that give us meaning and has given the human beings meaning for thousands of years, if not for our entire evolutionary history, for millions of years, have been overthrown in the name of personal liberty. I can marry who I want, and then I can divorce them and marry somebody else. And then I can move away, and my children can move away, and my parents can move away, and then they can move back. I can change jobs willy-nilly. This is all personal liberty and is good in a way, but it also comes at a cost. You can think of community as a slider. You can only belong to a community to the degree that you give up some personal liberty. Um, I was trying to think of good examples of this, and so I, I came up with sort of uh, music, because I love music. So um, this, a couple of years ago, I was reading about um, Indian classical music, actually. And this, the, the structure of Indian classical music is very different from Western music. And so they sort of use modes, this weird modes, which is kind of like scales. They're called ragas and then swirls. And so it's very, but basically, they use a subset of possible notes that are used to build structures of kind of songs within these larger raga structures. Anyway, so this gentleman, very educated, wrote a lovely post trying to explain this to Westerners who don't have the vaguest notion of what's going on. And one of the things he pointed out is in some of these subsections, you play some notes going up, but you play different, or you can put more notes in going down. So the upscale is different from the downscale. It gives a variety and it gives a certain sound. And the first post underneath there, I thought this was per, the first post was the American post par excellence. You can't tell me what notes to play. I can play any notes I want. <laughs> and this is it. This is the beautiful power of personal liberty, because it's true. And, and the gentleman who wrote the post was not trying to tell him what notes to play, except insofar as you wanted to play Indian classical music. If you want to play Indian classical music, you have to submit yourself to the structures that make up Indian class. This is not that confusing in one way. On the other hand, we hate this idea. I don't want you to tell me what I have to play. Fine, play whatever you want, but it's not going to be Indian classical music. But I want to play Indian classical. Well, then, here you go. And this is, by the way, it's the story of every music group that's ever been. 
a group of talented people come together and there's an overlap of their desire to express music. Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, The Doors, whomever. And then at some point that, there's that friction. Oh, I want to do that. Oh, I want to do that. I want to play a little more, a little, little bit jazzier, a little bit heavier. I want to do, I, you know, I like your girlfriend. Something happens. And then they explode. They blow apart. Because to be a member of a group, even a small group, three people, four people, means that I have to submit a little bit of what I want to do to do something that we can only do cooperatively. You, it's, it's, it's necessary. It's unavoidable. It's just like a slider. You have to give up some personal liberty so that you can do something you can only do with a group. The, the sort of the sort of furthest version of this, I'm always, I love symph symphonic music. But, but I always look at a symphony, I go, there's, you know, 60, 70, 80 musicians, each of whom have just spent years practicing. They're brilliant, brilliant musicians. And for 50 minutes, they might sit there and play a couple of whole notes, <laughs> right? I just sit sometimes, I watch them, and I think that person is giving up the opportunity to play anything like their capacity. I mean, they're doing nothing. The third violinist is doing some long notes there for a while. They've got it down. They could play that music 20 years ago when they were 12, perfectly fine. But if you're gonna play symphonic music, you have to let go of a lot of personal liberty. You have to say, for the sake of creating something that can only be created by a group of people who have all decided to submit, can a symphony come into being? It's this amazing product. In fact, all group music is this just phenomenal outpouring of human community tied to history. But it has that slider. Right, and then everybody does their solo projects. Generally terrible, right? This is or the band breaks up, and oh, we're all going to do solo records. Everybody goes, ah, crap, here it comes. Yeah, right? Occasionally it works out. Generally it doesn't work out at all, because it was the shared overlap of those people's expressions that made it great. This is what generated the excellence that moves us. Not the brilliant individual, although it can be the brilliant individual. But it was the expression of the shared group. Um, and, and so this notion of individual liberty versus group is this fundamental struggle and tension. It's not resolvable, by the way. If you look at the literature of utopias, People are always trying to come up with the perfect society in which I can just lose myself. I don't sacrifice any of my personal liberties because the society is so perfectly built that all of my liberties are freely expressed without constraint, and in fact, generally with a helping hand. This is utter nonsense and total crap. Do not fall for this in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> because it's impossible. Just go back to the musical example. 
If you're going to do something with a group, it just means part of you, you have to give something up. A similar example is if you want to look at something like ordering a pizza with your friends. I always love this. It's one of those great social dynamic problems. <laughs> Five people, one pizza, go! <laughs> Hours later, people have starved to death trying to work out this apparently insoluble problem, right? The only way you could, not the only way, but, but you, know, you can have a couple of solutions. One way you can say, I'm paying for the damn pizza. Everybody shut up. I'm ordering it. This is the history of the world. Although the history of the world is actually, I'm going to take a spear and make you pay for the pizza, and I'm ordering the one I want. And I'm not going to give you any. That's really the history of the world. Uh, if you move further along, and get a little more social dynamic in there, it is this, at some point, you've just got to decide. And generally what happens is people go, look, I, I just cannot eat anchovies. So order anything you want. For the good of the group, I'll sacrifice the pizza, my ideal pizza, my platonically pure pizza, because the group dynamic is more important to me than uh, getting the pizza that I think is perfect. Right? And so that's just, it really is that simple. And, it, and if, the, if pizza and music, think about something like the structure of a city or a town or our relations. But so when you read all these utopias, um, you know, uh, right-wing utopias that say, you know, we're going to do a hierarchy, we're going to make order, everybody just gives up their freedom, and then they're the most free, thank you, Kant. Um, you know, that's your the greatest freedom is when you give up all freedom somehow. Um, you know, the Prussian state idealized that. That's real, truly his argument. I'm not sort of making that up, unbelievably. Someday I'm going to do a lecture on Kant, but oh, it's so tough. Um, anyway, uh, then, then all the way to like these left-wing uh, sort of anarchist, neo-pagan sort of back to the land ones that say, oh, if we all just dissolve ourselves into nature and there's no money and it's all free trade and mud and carrots, it's going to be, you know, then we'll be free. And I'm like, I'm for mud and carrots, but I'm also for symphony orchestras. And if your society can't produce something like that, then I'm, I'm suspicious. But somebody in that society is going to go, ooh, pâté de foie gras. <laughs> and they're going to say, hey, we're like neo-anarchist mud people. We don't do patty de foie gras. And they're like, well, this is, by the way, this is, this is um, notes from the underground by Dostoevsky. He, he wrote this. He wrote this. It's clear. He made the argument. He's right about this. Human beings are perverse and we're diverse. We don't all want the same thing. So anytime we come together, there's got to be a compromise. Um, so given that, and given that the history has been hierarchical, get in line, which we tend to love, by the way. Get in line, do what you're told, and you'll get rewards. And you go, right, I'll just sacrifice myself to that. But we know that's limited. Then we got individual liberty. This is what we love. This is where we are. Liberty. If we have a problem, more liberty. Richest society, same thing as the material goods. Richest society history has ever known. If we have a problem, we need more money. This is just, it's, it's crazy, but it's, we're, we're as free as people have ever been. And it may be that personal liberty will help some things, but ah, be suspicious. Be very suspicious. Probably what we're going to need is some more communal feeling. But how do we do this? How, do, how can you do community without simply subverting yourself to some hierarchical order? Making yourself small. Again, bad. Or putting yourself at the top of the order and being the bastard or the bitch on top. That's not helpful either. How do we do this? Um, 
And the answer is it has to be voluntary. One place to look is the symposium. The great thing about Greek writing, having criticized them for being totally aristocratic, is that they're all aristocrats. Uh, they do not, they're not writing to people they want to dominate, and they're not writing to people who they want to be dominated by. They see themselves as the elite. But they're like, you're not better than me, and I'm not better than you, right? We're the same group, we're here. And so if you read the symposium, one of the issues there is how do we form a community? How do we get together? How do we love without making ourselves subservient to somebody or dominating somebody? How do we do a community when we're all noble, powerful, great, rich, handsome, brilliant, or a combination of all of the above? without sac making ourselves small, sacrificing ourselves, or enslaving other people. Not that they're against enslaving people, they just didn't want to enslave each other. Um, and basically the answer is love. This is the answer of the symposium. You have to voluntarily say, for the love of the community, and for the love of myself that can only thrive within the context of some community, I'm willing to give over some of my personal liberties and capacities for the greater thriving of those with whom I share my love and for the love I have myself. Because again, you cannot thrive as a human being on your own. This is one of our myths. By the way, this is how you end up on your own, by yourself, in an old folks home, which everybody realizes is not the way to die. If you decide every step of your life to make a decision for what's best for you, then you should expect to be on your own, by yourself, without people around you when you die. Good for you. Congratulations, you apparently won. Right? That doesn't sound attractive. But again, I mentioned this before, it is exactly what our society plans. When it's time for your kids to go to college, you send them away with no expectation or desire that they should ever come back. <laughs> Personal liberty. Look at the headlines. You see these headlines. Children are returning to live with their parents after college. <gasps> Quel horror. This is terrible. Parents and children living together in loving communities. Right? Well, what? Wait, time out. Why is that horrible again? It's such a strange story. But you've ever seen these headlines, right? This is, we know, uh, uh, old, poor older parents being forced to move back in with their children. Forced. Because this is an imposition of personal liberty. They should be independent actors who have all the money that they need to live by themselves without relying on anybody else. Ah, see, I don't want to have to rely on anybody because now I've risked a little bit of myself. Somebody could let me down. Someone in my community might not reciprocate the love as fully as I need it to be to give me what I actually need from the community to support me. And so at every step, the decision our society presses is you do what's best for you. And if you don't do what's best for you, you're just a sucker. We know this. It's not confusing in any way. Express your individual liberty. Best thing you can possibly do. 
But this isolates us. And we don't have a countervailing model. We don't know what else to do now. Again, my favorite example, because I use it all the time, is that people move around saying, I'm moving around looking for community. I'm like, duh! <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's duh! You know, I don't know. On one hand, yes, yes. Because if you're stuck someplace where you do not have community, you need to address that. But if you continually move around for it, you, you can't do that unless you're nomadic, unless you form a tribe of people who move with you. And that's great. This is what people always say, oh, I always want to be a nomad. No way. You don't mean, people don't mean that. Because what nomads did is they traveled everywhere with their culture. And because they did that, they were hugely dependent on each other. It was like the community times 10. Because you couldn't drag a lot of material shit around with you. And you're moving all the time, which means you're always exposed to threats. So those are incredibly tight human communities. We say nomad, we mean I want to move on my own wherever I want, whenever I want, to do whatever I want, if I can. I, freedom. Right? Not communal obligation. We don't say communal obligation. Uh, and so then we end up in this incredibly isolated, lonely. In fact, like I said, it's equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, unhealthy environments. So our thought experiment that I want you to, to start pondering is to think about every one of your social connections and ask yourself, is it voluntary? Is it based on love? Is it reciprocal? So let me start with where I, where, where I started from with student loans. So here's the thing with student loans. Everybody knows it's a scam. No, this is not, no one's confused about this, right? The, the interest rates are ridiculous. The terms, if you don't pay, they put these big penalties on, which all add up. If you don't get a job, well, then you're screwed. Right? Everybody knows this is ridiculous. And people keep saying, the government should do something, which is a, a, an interesting concept, um, except when you remember that the government wrote the student loan rules. And this was not a, a Democratic plan or a Republican plan. These plans were developed and implemented over many, many administrations of both parties as president and as Congress. It's a bipartisan idea. <coughs> Um, and support bipartisan. I mean, everybody likes this idea of the student loans. They say, oh, it needs to be tweaked or something. Uh, so, well, well, what are we going to do? What can people do? By the way, it's, again, it's right, right now they say it's the only loans that you can't really go bankrupt on. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Well, the answer is community. It's communal. If all the people who had student loans, or even a fair number of them, 20%, 30%, simply formed a co-op and said, we're going to renegotiate a new deal. We don't like this deal. Now, by the way, businesses and banks do this every single day. You gave us a loan, things changed, let's renegotiate. This is all they do, all the time. It's, it's not outside the law, it's not a political revolution. It's what businesses and banks do 24 hours a day. Totally standard. But the student loan borrower is an isolated individual. When the isolated individual goes to the bank, 
and says, hey, I'd like to renegotiate my loan, they say, ha, ha, ha. I think not. Ah, if you got, say, 20% of the borrowers, that would be about 10-ish million people. 25% around there. And they're paying, I'm just roughing the estimates out, those 10-ish million people are paying several billion dollars a month in loan payments. Now, if any business in the world that's making several billion dollars a month in loan payment goes to their banks and says, hey, I want to renegotiate this, or I'm going to stop paying, the bank says, hey, great, let's, let's talk. Let's chat. Let's go to lunch. It'll be great. So you form a commune. You form a community of shared interest and value, and you go to the banks and say, hey, we don't like these penalties. We don't like that we have to pay when we're unemployed. That should go away. The rate should be set at something against the, you know, whatever the prime rate is, a couple points over prime, maybe one, maybe 750 basis points, something like that above prime, nothing big. Bank's still making money. You're not saying you're not going to pay. Just going to pay on terms that make sense or better for the borrowers. And if the banks say no, then here's where the commune comes in. The commune together has to say, for the good of all, we're not going to pay. And my guess is the banks would say no, and if about 25% of the people actually stopped paying for about two months, and they've lost somewhere between 10 and $20 billion in revenue, the banks would immediately be like, you know what, I think we want to talk. And if you got 50% of the people to sign up, the banks would definitely talk. They'd have to, or else they'd go bankrupt. The banks would go bankrupt. That's probably when you get the government involved, going, okay, let's redo this. Let's everybody just sit down and chat, right? Just, we're all adults. We don't want anything crazy to happen. But it runs so completely counter to our notion. I'm an isolated individual. Either the government, the nexus of our freedoms, has to do it or nothing can be done. We've forgotten that for almost the entirety of human history, the only thing that ever got done was things that we did communally. Um, but that's sort of, like I said, that's like a big social problem, but make it more personal. And I think the one to go back to is the family. No institution in world history is more oppressive than the family. It, it is one of the great, incredibly tyrannical, oppressive, institution. It really is and has been. Also necessary, also a locus of love and compassion potentially, right? This incredibly mixed bag. But one place that's really hard, so I just thought let's start at the hardest part, is to just say, okay, where does our family come from, right? Step one, you're born. Not a lot of choice there. No personal liberty. Well, at some point you become an adult, and in theory, you have some liberty. In practice, our society tells us all kinds of things about families. And what we've done is we've created this incredibly halfway hedge, guilt-ridden, not very family-family structure in which everybody recognizes they aren't doing what they think they're supposed to do to be a family, 
but no one really changes their operation from the personal liberty they feel they should have to actually have one. So, for instance, this is why people always say, oh, this is horrible. It used to be the wife, when they got married, would move in with the husband's family or the husband would move in with the wife's family. And people go, well, this is incredibly oppressive. She doesn't see her family. He doesn't see his family anymore, right? Even though they probably live very close together. But it's the idea you live over here now. But this is the great Christmas problem, right? <laughs> if, you, if you get married, it's like, well, whose family are we going to for Christmas? <laughs> And so people come up, well, we'll go to alternating families. We'll go to one in the morning and one in the evening. We'll, right, it's all of the, how are you supposed to deal with this? Answer, there is no good solution to this. Because what our society says is you must be with your family for Christmas, and you should get married, and you should be with both families at Christmas, and you should move where you want to live. And what the hell, there's no way to square that circle can't be done. Right? Traditionally, it was easy because you just, the rules were there. Either all the families lived together or they lived across the street from each other or you just went with the other family or they came to yours. No guilt, no worries. That's just the rules. You knew what to do. But we're still told our families matter. And I would like to suggest that in a, in a world of personal liberty, you have to break this thought habit. Your family was random. They were thrust upon you. You had no choice. If you're going to build communities of love and personal support, at some point you have to ask, are those people actually good for me? Do they really want to help me? Are they worth my time and my investment? Is it worth sacrificing some of my liberty to continue to participate with them? Or should I simply just eliminate them from my life? It's a brutal question. It's the only real answer. What we tend to do is hedge around, right? Oh, we got to do this because of the family, but I don't want to, but I will. And then, ah, it's all, hence the family reunion. Bunch of people who never see each other probably don't like each other, may not even get along that well, pretend like they like each other for a short period of time, and then go, good Lord, I hope that never happens again. <laughs> right? Is this not the structure of a family reunion? Often. Not invariably, but I think often enough. Um, but that notion of voluntarily choosing and either saying, no, I think... These family members are good for me. They're value. We have this powerful history. See, it's the powerful history that throws us off. We have this powerful history together. The investment is worthwhile. They actually do care for me. And it's worth reciprocating with them. Yes. Or going, mm, no. No. This is not good for me. It's not good for them. We don't actually <coughs> like each other. We don't have anything in common. <coughs> We're just random people that happen to have similar parents. They cohabitated for a while when we were young and didn't know any better. <laughs> right? But if you start running this through all of your communal relationships, I think what you'll find is we often dissipate our capacity for communal living and for caring about other people by spending a lot of time, energy, and money on people that, at the end of the day, we really don't care about that much because we feel obligated to. 
And instead of taking that same time, energy, money, whatever that you have, and giving it to those people who you think genuinely help you and feed you and make you a better person and help you thrive, and that you can genuinely help them and feed them and help them thrive. Ah, that's voluntary community. That's how you know you've, you've chosen. And you can even choose to say, yeah, I know they're terrible people and whatnot, but hey, they're my parents, great. I'm going to go with it. But then you've chosen, and you've at least articulated it to yourself. It's this, it's this very interesting challenge that we don't think about. But it's the only way of overcoming social isolation and fragmentation and all the problems that people talk about accompany a society that puts so much emphasis on civil liberties. Now, I'm not getting uh, personal liberties. I'm not against personal liberty. I'm for it. But what's important to remember is that the, the Enlightenment happened. In a lot of ways, the Enlightenment won. Applying more Enlightenment values does not make sense. It, it, it's, it becomes unhelpful. I need even more liberal. I need to be free from these people even more. Another way to think about it is personal liberty is great, but at some point you have to choose what to do with it. Being free is pointless, has no use, unless you choose to do something. If you choose to be in a band, then at some point you go, right. They want to play this song, eh, I'm not that hot on that song, but okay. They want to play Berlioz. I don't even like Berlioz. Actually, I love Berlioz. But anyway, you know, that, that, but you know, they go, okay, I don't I want to play this piece, but we'll play the piece. They're playing it too slow. The director doesn't know what he's doing, but I just I go along with it for the beauty that can be created from that voluntarily. If we're unwilling to make those reasons, then we're just simply essentially a slave weirdly to personal liberty. We're so terrified of committing to anything and taking on responsibility and giving other people responsibility, which I think we hate as much, over us. That's the love requirement, right? I've got to trust you enough to give you some responsibility for my well-being. Vulnerability, open myself up. Now I'm not a monad. I'm not out on my own. The, the conqueror of the West, you know, riding on the horse all by himself, shooting the Indians, right? We've got to shoot them. Uh, the victory of the, of, the, of the lone man on the horse over the communal Indians. We know this story. The community of the Indians has to lose. The Native Americans have got to go down because it's the individual that will triumph. And the individual triumphed. And here we are. We don't need any more individual triumphs. We've individually triumphed ourselves to the world that we have. And, and like I said, uh, uh, there's so many examples of this, I don't even know where to start, but uh, the popularity of dating apps, right? This is, this is a multi-billion dollar industry with hundreds of millions of people in every possible kind of dating app. You have farmers dating apps and, and uh, Christian Mingle, I love this, it's free sex for fundamentalist Christians. Uh, you know, they have, I mean, this just goes on and on and on. Every community, every group, big group, small group, they all have a dating app, why? Because they're alone. It's a simple explanation. They're alone. 
it's, it, it, what, a, it, what a terrible fate for a social animal. It's really, if you've ever been to a zoo and you see a, uh, I hate to go to zoos, by the way, because it's particularly old-fashioned zoos, new zoos, because you'd see these animals on their own. And I always thought, ah, they don't want to be on their own. They want to be with other animals like them or, or other, any, just any, they want to be with anybody else. Social animals need people. Half of all suburban homes in the United States have one occupant. Suburban homes, I mean, that is a terrifying number. They, one, they're big, it's a complete waste of space. Um, two, they're, they're actually geographically isolated. That's the magic of the suburb. Let's take people and separate them from everybody else. Yay. So you're geographically, physically, and in, 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 in your domicile, isolated. So what else are you going to do? Absolutely. Some kind of app, some kind of something that reaches out to people. Of course, you have all the old folks home. People go to die on their own. You know, we have uh, just high suicide rates, one of the things leading indicators of suicide. They're going up. So one of the things that leads to this is people feel isolated. This is one of the things researchers are saying, increased feelings of isolation. And it's because people are more isolated. It's not confusing. Um, in England, because the, they have uh, public health care there, the government-funded health care, they've actually set up a sort of crisis program because they said loneliness is leading to so much death and disability that it's a medical crisis. So they're trying to intervene in people's loneliness. So, you know, this is the, the, the weird nexus that we find ourselves in. Triumph of individual liberty, good. Yay, yes, enlightenment, excellent, has freed us from all kinds of tyranny and oppression, but it also broke down those communal institutions that gave us meaning, support, love, a sense of belonging, identity. And we've run, I think, as far as we can go with that. Absolutely, I can't imagine us being more monadic. I, I, it would be terrifying to think that we could be more isolated as, as a society than we have become. Maybe we could do it. Interesting experiment. Probably not healthy. Um, and yet we don't have a concept yet of how to break that. And again, if you look at the various utopias, they tend to say, join a group, submit to the group, and everything will be fixed. You'll just dissolve all your alienation into the perfect community. If they're conservative, they tend to be uh, male-dominant, hierarchical, everybody knows their role. Like I said, if they're liberal anarchists, they tend to be very, you know, uh, free love and no money and all of this. But it always has this notion of, oh, it's going to be perfect for you. It's not going to be perfect for you. It is impossible. It is this necessary but painful abandonment of a little bit of our liberty for a little bit of what the community gives us back. And if we don't want to submit to a hierarchy or try to force people to follow us, I'm the dad, you have to respect me, ha-ha. Or go, well, that's the person's in charge, I've got to do what they say so that I can belong and be a member of the club. By the way, people do this. 
because they're desperate for identity. They both try to dominate and try to enter in hierarchies where they're dominated, but they at least know their place. If you, don't want, if you want to avoid that, which I hope we do, um, then you're to this other thing. We, it's just a matter of commitment and love to look at the people and the communities in my life and saying, what is my contribution to them? How do I make it happen? And again, to make it less abstract, just think of a band. Imagine you're going to join a band. Any band you love, your favorite band of all time, it's going to ask you to be a member because they love you and they think you're great. And on one hand, we think, wow, that would be amazing. But then think, remember that, oh, but now I have to do you have to play all the songs that they have that you hate the most, right? They're still in the repertoire. They're still there. You're going to have to tour around and play them all the time, even if you don't like them. That's, that's the little bit. For the love of what can be created only through community, you have to sacrifice. That's not really a sacrifice. You commit a little of yourself so that other people can commit to you. It's reciprocal. And if other people can't help you, then you're not in a community. This is the, this is the interesting dynamic. So think both, what am I community, but what are people, how do people help me? How does this come together? And it runs so contrary to our notion of individual liberty and freedom as being the thing that uh, really it's hard to think about. So that's, that's the task I'm giving you, to start imagining what this means, to look at the relationships and say, is this, is this really part of my community or am I just faking it? Is this, is this good for me? Are they, am I good for them? By the way, sometimes we're just bad for other people. Not that we're doing bad things. We're just not good for them. They're not good for us. Not that they're doing bad things. Just we don't work. And so when you think about this concept, like I said, of the individual and the community, Remember, it's just a slider. The more individual liberty you have that you try to hold and maintain, the less communal you are. And, and not everybody wants to be on the same place on that slider, by the way. But you need, we need desperately to be healthy, functioning human beings to have community. And in our society and with the values that we've inherited, it runs very strongly against that. And so in the transvaluing our values, Think about this. How do I get more community? What does that mean? And what part of my society keeps telling me not to do that? Because I do think it's gone a bit crazy, and we've gone a little far on the individual liberty thing. So anyway, transvaluations of all values, individual and the community. Thank you.